Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I am your host, Larry Weeks. Today we're covering another unsolved murder. Before we do, I just want to thank today's sponsor, Hunter Killer. Now, I'm so excited to tell you guys about today's sponsor because it is so incredibly unique and it is so much fun. It is a murder mystery subscription box and it is designed so that you can play it by yourself if you want to or you can play it with some friends, maybe with a cheeky wine. Basically, with every delivery, you get to go through different case files, different evidence, different clues, different audio recordings. and One by one, you eliminate suspects until you solve the case. It's almost like an escape room, but at home. They have really interesting storylines, and you learn about each of the suspects and their backgrounds and their complicated relationships with the victim. Also, part of the proceeds to every single box goes towards the Cold Case Foundation, which is an organization that is dedicated to solving real cases, which I think is amazing. The box I have is about a woman named Victoria Gaynor, and just all the little letters and everything, all the clues. It's honestly so well thought out. It's so much fun. And it's my favorite thing to do right now. You can get 20% off your first box if you go to huntedkiller.com and use the code TCNS. I will leave all the information for that in the show notes if you guys are interested. And with further ado, or without further ado, Let's go ahead and get into today's case. Jane Scott disappeared under mysterious circumstances after receiving many alarming phone calls from an unknown male. Her remains were found by a construction worker four years after her disappearance. But 40 years later, her case still remains unsolved. Dorothy was born on April 23, 1948 in Anaheim, California. To parents Jacob and Vera Scott in 1976, she gave birth to her son Sean. She was a single mother because Sean's father, Dennis Terry, wasn't really in the picture. He actually lived three and a half thousand kilometers away in Missouri. In 1980, Dorothy was 32 years old and her son was four. And they were living with her aunt, Shanty Scott, in Stanton, California, which was about 20 minutes away from Anaheim, which is where her parents lived. 
where she worked as a back office secretary at Swinger Psych Shop and Custom John's Head Shop. Both of the shops were very interesting little stores. Psych shops and head shops had become somewhat popular in the 60s and 70s. And during the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of, you know, tie-dye hippies, a lot of drug use. These stores blasted a lot of rock music. They were very colorful, very hippie-esque type vibes. And at a swing store, they sold bongs, drug paraphernalia, that sort of thing. And then you could pop on next door into the head shop. And hang out where they had a bunch of cool posters, music in a backlit room. The head shop and psych shop were two different businesses. But they were both co-owned by Dorothy's father. Dorothy's father actually was a co-owner of Swinger Psych Shop, so they lived pretty close to it. And Dorothy would work from early in the morning until late at night, trying to provide for her son. So she would drop him off at her parents' house each day so they could look after him while she was at work. Dorothy's personality was quite different from these colorful, lively shops that she worked in. And one of her friends, I use the term friend very loosely here, because she described Dorothy as dull as a phone book. Her co-workers described her as dependable and organized. Friends and family said she was a wonderful mother who would do anything for her son. She was kind and compassionate and was a devout Christian who regularly attended church. And she was a She was very much an introvert. She didn't drink. She didn't do drugs. She didn't date. She didn't really go out much. She just kind of preferred to spend her nights at home, hanging out with her son. Sometime during the early months of 1980, Dorothy started receiving some really sketchy phone calls, both at her home and also at her workplace. The calls came from an anonymous male, and Dorothy told her mother and she told co-workers that the voice sounded really familiar, but she just couldn't put her finger on who it was. Now this man would sometimes profess his love for her, and then other times and other times, because it's really all about balance, would threaten to murder her. He was sometimes very violent in his phone calls, very resentful. He would talk about how he would get her alone, and then he would dismember her so that nobody would be able to find her. He admitted to stalking her, and he would recount in great deal things that she had done that day or what she had been wearing that day, just to prove his point. And I guess freak her out on one occasion, he called her up and told her to look outside because he'd left a surprise for her. And when she did, she found a dead rose on the windshield of her 1973 station wagon. These calls went on for months and months, and one of the last calls she received from him freaked her out so much that she decided to take up karate lessons so that she could learn to defend herself if ever he decided to take things off the phone and into real life. She spoke to her mother Vera and some co-workers as well about purchasing a firearm to be able to defend herself. However, she never got around to it before she was abducted the morning of the 28th of May in 1980. The day started off just like any normal day, but they didn't, but don't they always. I feel like in these cases, I'm always like, yeah, the day this person literally was murdered started off just like any normal day. I mean, how else would it start, you know? Anyway, she dropped her son, Sean, off at her parents' house before she headed to work for an employee meeting that they were having that day. At the meeting, one of Dorothy's co-workers, Conrad Bostrin, seemed to be pretty unwell. 
He could hardly sit still in his chair, and he was kind of sweating. He had this big red rash on his arm that was really inflamed and swollen. And as the meeting went on, Dorothy was getting more and more concerned for him. He just seemed to be getting worse. So he, she convinced him to let her take him to the UCI Medical Center, which is just the hospital near them. Another worker named Pam had also decided to come along. Dorothy drove her to Toyota station wagon. She stopped at her parents' house so that she could check in on Sean and let them know what was happening. And she also changed. She had like a gray or black scarf on and she changed that to a red scarf before heading off to the medical center. As it turned out, Dorothy was a legend for wanting to bring him to the hospital because he had been bitten by a black widow spider. Which makes me cringe just thinking about it because they have one of the most painful bites ever. And it can last several days. Just really bad pain, swelling, nausea. And if you get one, even if you go to the hospital, they usually want monitor you for like 8 to 12 days after. And if a kid gets bitten by a black widow spider, it can actually be fatal. Like these spider bites are no joke. Conrad ended up being in the hospital all day and all night. Pam and Dorothy, absolutely troopers, stayed there all day and all night waiting for him. They were just reading magazines, small talk, but they stayed in the lobby together the entire time. Unless they were, like, you know, going to the bathroom or something. It wasn't until 11 p.m. that Conrad was discharged, and very understandably, he was still looking very woozy and very unwell. So Dorothy decided it would be best for her to go to the car herself and bring around to the front so he could just easily hop in. And they could leave, and while she was doing so, Conrad and Pam just headed into the hospital pharmacy to pick up his prescription. However, little did they know that when Dorothy left the lobby doors to pick up her car, it was the last time she would ever be seen alive. After picking up the prescription, which took probably around five minutes, Conrad and Pam headed to the front of the hospital where they expected Dorothy to be, waiting for them. She wasn't there, so they waited roughly 15 to 20 minutes before they decided to walk over to her car where it was originally parked to find her as they did. So her car all of a sudden came throttling towards them, full speed, high beams on, and the beams were so bright they couldn't see who was driving. They couldn't tell if it was Dorothy or not, but they started like waving their arms, being like, hello, we're here, what the heck is going on? The car, however, did not slow down for them. It just narrowly missed them by swerving around. They chased after it when it went to leave the hospital, and it turned off the lights, completely turned right out of the hospital, and disappeared into the night. They were obviously like, what the heck is going on? Like their friend just randomly came crazily driving towards them, almost hit them, and then turned their lights off completely and vanished into the night. And they were just kind of trying to make sense of what happened as I'm sure any person in their position would. And they were thinking maybe there were some sort of emergency. Maybe something had happened with her son and she just really needed to get home and see what was going on before she came back to pick them up. So they waited for her and they waited for two hours, but she never turned up. So they decided to call her parents, Vera and Jacob, and they said they hadn't heard from her either which is when Pam decided to call the UCI police. Who, I mean, would you guess they weren't really interested? She was an adult. She could do what she wanted. They did become interested, however. Four to five hours later, 
at about 4.30 to 5 a.m. when her car was found engulfed in flames in a Santa Ana alleyway about 15 kilometers away. There was no trace of Dorothy inside the car, and several search parties were conducted in the following days, but no traces of her were found. Now, the car being found in itself is really interesting, because how did it get there? There were a few reports that there was another car in front of Dorothy's that also turned the same way out of the hospital. I couldn't confirm these, though, and only some reports mentioned this other car. This is true, and this likely means that maybe there were two assailants, or maybe one was driving Dorothy's car, or, and one was driving the other car in front, because I don't know. I failed to believe that Dorothy was driving this car, or that this random person would get Dorothy to follow them in such an erratic way. From all the information I've gathered, it would be really out of character for Dorothy to be just driving like that at all, and having two assailants would definitely mean that one of them could have set the car on fire. The other one could have been there and they could have left in that car with Dorothy in the car, and that's why her body wasn't found. If the information about this second car was incorrect, which I personally am inclined to believe, because otherwise I feel like it would be a bigger deal, I feel like all the reports would mention if this like mysterious car that left in front of Dorothy's, I feel like that would be a point of interest in the case, and it wasn't really discussed. Except for in like a couple of articles that maybe mentioned it. So if the information is correct, I'm inclined to believe then the assailant would have had to either dump Dorothy's body first and then go and set the car on fire, which gave them like a four to five hour window to murder and dispose of Dorothy's body. Or they would have had to have been picked up from the site where the car was set on fire. Or they would have had to walk, but no witnesses had ever come forward as to have seen anybody set this car on fire, or anybody walking around, or anyone sketchy in the area. The calls that Dorothy was receiving before her murder didn't stop afterwards either. Either, About a week later, her mother, Vera, was home alone when she received a call from an anonymous male. The man asked, Are you related to Dorothy Scott? And Vera replied, Yes. And the man said, I've got her, and then hung up. After receiving the call, Vera contacted the police, and they told her and Jacob not to release any information about the calls or the disappearance to the media, to the public, because they felt like it could negatively affect the cost, the case. They didn't want to get any false leads. They didn't want any false information after After a week passed, Jacob just, just became fed up. He was losing patience with the police, and he decided to talk to the Santa Ana Register. The paper then ran a story about the disappearance and offered a $2,500 reward for any information as to Dorothy's whereabouts. The day the story was published, Pat Riley, the editor, received a call from an anonymous male. This is what the man said on the call. He said, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. This man also authenticated himself as the person who abducted Dorothy by going into detail about things that hadn't been released to the public. 
He knew that Dorothy had changed from a black or gray scarf into a red one. He also knew about Conrad's spider bite and knew that Dorothy had taken him to the UCI Medical Center. He also stated that Dorothy had called him just hours before her disappearance from the hospital. Now this call was obviously super sketchy. Her friends and family said that she hadn't been dating, that she wasn't talking to any guys. She wasn't even interested in talking to any guys, and she definitely didn't have a boyfriend. Pam, who was at the hospital with Dorothy, also said that she hadn't called anyone that day. She had been with her all day and all night. They had been in the lobby together, except for the times that like one of them was going to the bathroom or something, and she hadn't heard on a phone call once. I just thought this was weird because police kind of just took her word as a Bible, where it's like she could have called someone in the bathroom. She could have said she was going to the bathroom and actually gone to call somebody. She could have called somebody while Pam was in the bathroom. Like, I don't really understand the whole... She definitely didn't call someone. Because I was there with her the whole time, and there was multiple occasions when they went off to the bathroom. It also doesn't seem like, as far as I can tell, that the police looked in any phone records. So it's really hard to tell whether or not she actually did call somebody that night. In their investigations, detectives contacted Sean's father... Dennis, but he was over 3,500 miles away in Missouri, so he was ruled out as a suspect. Everyone from the psych shop and the swinger shop was questioned multiple times, and all of them were ruled out as suspects. It was believed that because Dorothy worked as a back office secretary, and no customers would have been able to see her, that it likely wasn't a customer that had been harassing her. They checked out all the sex offenders in the area, didn't really come up with any suspects. They questioned everybody in her social circle. There was nobody that disliked her. She had no enemies, really. And there was nobody in her inner circle that even seemed maybe a bit of a sketchy person, like a bit of a freak, that could have done this. Dorothy's parents contacted multiple psychics because there was just no evidence in the case, and there were no leads. It just wasn't moving, and detectives also contacted the psychic themselves. But again, there was just there's very little evidence in this case. Months turned into years, but Dorothy's attacker never grew tired of trying to taunt her family. Almost every single day for the next four years, on a Wednesday afternoon, the anonymous male called Vera's mother at her home. And originally I was like, I have no idea how he would have found the parents' home phone, but I think that stuff was like public information back when phone books were a thing. I haven't looked at a phone book for 15 years, but every Wednesday when a man would call, he would say something along the lines of, I've got her, I killed her, or where is Dorothy, or is Dorothy there? Like just some sort of sick game, police set up a recorder in the Scott family residence to record the killer's voice which is gruff and plainly disguised. However, nobody recognized the voice. They also tried on multiple occasions to trace the call. However, he never stayed on the line long enough for them to do so. It seemed like this guy was stalking Vera and Jacob in the same way that he was stalking Dorothy, and that he knew their day-to-day routines. He knew when he could call in Wednesday afternoons, when Vera would be home, until one day in April of 1984 when he called up and Jacob answered the phone. The man hung up and didn't call back for a long time. After this now, besides these calls as far as leads go, there was nothing. 
There was very, very little evidence in this case, and slowly it started to go cold. Till August 6, 1984, when a construction worker found the remains of a dog at Santa Ana Canyon Road, about 20 kilometers away from UCI Medical Hospital. The worker kept digging and found human remains beneath the dog remains. He found a human pelvis, an arm, two thighs, and a skull. The body was found with a turquoise ring, as well as a watch, which it had stopped at 12.30 a.m. on May 29, 1980, the day Dorothy had disappeared. Dorothy's mom also positively identified the turquoise ring as having belonged to Dorothy. I couldn't find any information about the remains of the dog or who the dog belonged to, but I think it's possible that the dog maybe belonged to the killer. Or maybe even this was some sort of like ritualistic thing, and that's why the dog was there. Just seems like too much of a coincidence that a random dog was buried on top of Dorothy. Just... Over a week after the remains were found, dental records were used to confirm that the remains belonged to Dorothy Scott. An autopsy was conducted on the remains, but due to the severe decomposition as well as the lack of remains found, they were unable to determine the cause of death. After the announcement of the discovery, Jacob and Vera received one last call from the anonymous male, who said, Is Dorothy there? Since the case has been cold for the last 36 years, Dorothy's father passed away in 94, and her mother passed away in 2002, without ever having received closure as to what happened to their daughter. So let's talk about some theories, despite the fact that there have never officially been any suspects in this case. There has, of course, been some speculation as to who the killer might be now. Apparently there was a man named Mike Butler, who Dorothy's son Sean became aware of through a couple of Dorothy's friends who lived in Missouri. Michael Butler was a deeply religious man and was well known throughout his community. He was said to have alternative religious beliefs and may have been involved in some cult-like activity, which definitely would make sense on the front of the dog being buried with Dorothy. It could be some sort of cult-like, ritualistic sort of thing. He was an army brat and his mother was a New Zealand war bride while his father was an army captain. His family settled in Southern California after his father decided to retire. He attended Fullerton Union High School. He ended up graduating in the early 1960s and then went on to attend Cal State University, majoring in English. He was known to be a pretty good athlete, voted MVP for cross-country track. When he was 20 years old, he was drafted into the U.S. Army and was assigned to Hahnfels in Germany in 1967. After completing basic training while stationed in Germany, he became a writer who was published frequently in Stars and Stripes News. He also served as a base commander's public information and media officer, as well as a photographer. After his time on in the military, he went on to a completely different line of work and decided to become a roadie for a bunch of different rock bands for the Beach Boys, and as well for his sister's band, which was quite successful. His sister was an accomplished musician and singer who at one time worked with Dorothy at the Swinger Shop in Anaheim. While she was working there with Dorothy, Mike had also settled in Orange County in California and worked at 
at a machine shop as a maintenance employee just across the road from where Dorothy and his sister were. And if he worked this close to Dorothy, that means he definitely would work close enough to have popped in, spoken to Dorothy enough for her to be familiar with his voice, but maybe not enough that she could pinpoint exactly who he was. Because as I mentioned, he said the voice on the call was familiar. It also means that he may have been close enough to keep an eye on her day-to-day activities, which is how he knew all this information about her and stalked her and whatnot. On the 28th of June in 2014, Mike passed away from health complications. So if he did have anything to do with the murder, it's likely that it will never be solved. There was also some speculation that the Golden State Killer may have been responsible for the murder because there were some similarities between Dorothy's murder and the Golden State Killer's M.O. He always called his victims before his crimes, and on one occasion he called a victim a decade later just to let her know that he was still out there. He would often target women who were home alone, single woman mothers, whose husbands may not have been home at the time, and he always stalked his victims as well. The Golden State Killer was also known as the East Area Rapist, and was also thought to have been the Vesalia Ransacker. So he was definitely known for being a peeping Tom, for being a bit of a creep for always stalking these women. He also moved to Southern California in 1979. Just one year before Dorothy's murder to continue his crime spree. I do think this theory is pretty far-fetched for a number of reasons, but I thought it was worth mentioning. There are definitely some disparities between his M.O. and Dorothy's murder. And it just seems like Dorothy's murder was very, very personal. Like it wasn't by the one guy who was going around and had all these different victims. This was a very targeted attack, and he seemed to know everything about her. He told Dorothy's mother and Pat Riley, the editor of the Santa Ana Register, that he loved Dorothy, which is something that the Golden State Killer never did. He never proclaimed a love for any of his victims. He also usually committed all of his crimes at the victim's home. And Dorothy was obviously taken from the UCI Medical Center. Not from her house. Now the last theory is that Dorothy did have some sort of secret boyfriend. Or maybe some sort sort of secret ex-boyfriend who was still in love with her. And very salty about the breakup. Maybe they were still together. And had some sort of fight. Or maybe he feared that Dorothy was cheating on him. So he decided to murder her. Murder her. This would make sense in terms of the killer saying that he was in love with her, saying that she called him from the hospital that night, because if it was a secret boyfriend or ex-boyfriend, then maybe she did. It also makes sense in terms of, like, he always knew what she was doing there. She knew how to find out all of these people in her life's phone numbers, but it wouldn't make sense in terms of the fact that nobody in her life had any idea that she was dating. She worked long hours, and then she would go home, and she would just spend all night with her son. So I feel like someone in her life would have some sort of suspicion if she was dating someone, because they knew where she was practically at all times. She lived with her auntie, so she wasn't at, 
she wasn't home at night, then her auntie would know she's not home at night, or her parents would know that she was asking them to babysit for some unknown reason. So I'm not really sure when she would have had the time to date somebody. But again, no, we only know what information is presented to us. It's hard to determine whether or not she was dating someone or whether or not she had time to date somebody. We only know what we're told from the people who were around her. So that's all the information I have on this case. I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments section. Or send us a tweet at TrueCrimeNS. What theory do you believe? Or is there any theories you thought of that maybe I didn't mention? Let us know on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. All over social media. Just search True Crime Never Sleeps on your favorite social media platform. Also, be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms. And recently, we were just added to iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Follow us on Twitter at True Crime NS. Like us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps. Send us a voice message at anchor.fm slash true crime never sleeps slash message. Tune in next week for an all new episode. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.